Let us pray. So, Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to mold and move and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus, to reflect his glory, to honor his name. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you this morning on this wet morning. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. As I said, as I greeted everyone here, and by the way, good morning to everyone on the live stream. I forgot or neglected to greet you as the service began. Um, we're so glad you've joined us as well. But today is Transfiguration Sunday. We observe Jesus' glory being revealed for a moment on the mount to the apostles. The transfiguration is recorded in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it is always observed on the Sunday immediately prior to the start of Lent. We heard the account of the transfiguration from St. Mark's gospel read just a few minutes ago. Now, in years past, I've focused on the importance of the transfiguration, the significance of those who were present for this event, Peter, James, and John, and as well as significance of Moses and Elijah appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration in that moment as well. For a brief moment in the event of the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed to Peter, James, and John in the fullness of his glory. Mark 9, verses 2 through 3 tell us, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And as I emphasize every time I preach on the transfiguration, it is not as if a bright light or some kind of external radiance was beamed down upon and reflected by Jesus. That's not the case at all here. Rather, the radiance that was seen, the radiance of Jesus that was seen by those present floods out from the, within his very being, revealing his divine glory revealing his true identity as the eternal Son of God. Even as St. John the Apostle, a witness to all this, wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and, we dwelt, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think every time I preach on the Transfiguration, I also quote W.D. Davies and Dale Allison from their commentary on Matthew's gospel with the transfiguration, where they describe it this way. The language implies not a mere illumination from without, but an ear radiation from within, a transient effulgence, so to speak, or the beams of divine glory through the veil of humanity. The beams of divine glory shining out through and past the veil of humanity. Now looking back to this incredible experience, St. Peter writes to the recipients of his second epistle or letter. In all likelihood, this second letter of Peter was written from Rome decades after Christ's death and resurrection. 
and very close to the time of Peter's death as a martyr. Now, I know, and you may encounter this at times, there are some folks who are biblical scholars that would argue that 2 Peter was not written by Peter because of the difference in the sophistication of the language in 2 Peter compared to 1 Peter. Um, I don't agree with that camp, um, nor do a lot of very sound biblical scholars. And there are a number of ways to understand and explain this, one of which is Peter was writing this very near to the end of his life. And it, there's a very strong pop probability that he was using someone called an amanuensis, which is someone who is a scribe who records what you're saying. And so Peter would convey to that person his experiences and then under the inspiration of the guidance of the Holy Spirit for both of them, that scribe, that amanuensis would record in his own vocabulary and in his own language what Peter was conveying of this experience. Peter writes to emphasize the importance of essential truth. Specifically in this context, the witness of Christ's transfiguration and the witness of the Old Testament prophets. Essential truth is incredibly important. Peter understands the gravity of the need to be grounded in God's truth, to be grounded in those things which are absolutely essential. And things which are essential, essential truth bears repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. Because it needs to, we need to be continually reminded of essential truth. It needs to soak down deeply into our spirits, into our innermost being. In 2 Peter 1.12 we read, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Even though you know it, I'm always going to remind you of these things. Now, in Peter's context, the original recipients of this letter seem to have been somewhat of a mess. Peter reminds them of these truths because they seem to have been abusing or wrongly viewing the grace of God. If you look back earlier in chapter 1 or you look further along in this short epistle, that becomes evidence. And they were using the grace of God as an excuse for license and in an attempt to wrongly justify sinful, ungodly behavior and ways of being. In other words, they were using this false understanding and this deficient understanding of the grace of God to justify or as an excuse for disobedience. Now, things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? In the world and even in the church, where far too often we're quick to say, well, it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven. And even if we won't say it, we think it. So it's okay. It's under the blood, whatever, whatever you want to say. But the reality is that's, that's a deficient understanding of the grace of God. Because the grace of God is not just doing whatever you want to do and knowing that you're forgiven. The God's true grace and true and right understanding of God's grace scripturally is transformative. And God's grace empowers us not to do whatever we want, but to do what is right by God's grace and power. Peter's intention to consistently remind them of God's essential truth is intended to stir them toward godly action, true repentance, and amendment of life. 
And the bottom line for them and for us is that we need to stay close to the Lord. Did you hear that? We need to stay close to the Lord. Michael Green in his commentary on this text says this. It is very evident that their lives left a lot to be desired. And yet they were established Christians. Surely this is a solemn warning that it is all too easy to lapse into serious sin or doctrinal error. There is no safeguard against this except living in direct touch with the Lord and Savior. The remedy for error, the, the remedy for falling and becoming ensnared in sin is staying close to the Lord, staying in living and direct touch with our Lord and Savior. We must stay close to the Lord, and we must stay firmly grounded in God's truth. Now, beginning in verse 16, Peter shifts to specifics. He knows that his martyrdom is imminent. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he knows his martyrdom is imminent, and he wants to give his readers an account of his authoritative witness. So in these verses, specifically verses 16 through 18, he speaks of his witness to Christ's transfiguration and the importance of this event. Verse 16, we were eyewitnesses. We saw this with our own eyes. We heard the voice of the Father speaking from heaven with our own ears. Peter is saying to his first readers and to us through God's word, right here in this place this morning, that all of this is irrefutably true. He and the others saw it, and they heard with their own eyes. This is their testimony. They were firsthand witnesses to this glorious revelation of the Son of God. We too are witnesses, not to something perhaps quite this dramatic or this intense, but we are, as believers, new creations in Christ, continually being transformed by Christ and shaped in his image. We are witnesses to the glory of God as well and how he is, has and continues to transform us and those around us and people we see being brought into God's kingdom as we see God's gracious work in them. We have been, in many cases, witnesses to, to God's presence in profound ways in specific times and specific instances. I can think back on a number of times, but one that I remember profoundly, profoundly, and it has been, I was thinking this week as I was writing this sermon, it has been 30-some years, but I was in a little Methodist church up in Cecil County, Maryland. Does anybody here besides me even know where Cecil County, Maryland is? A few of you do. And it was, a, it was a special service on a weeknight, and God's presence filled that place in a profound way. There was no hype. It was dead silence. Not dead silence. It was actually living silence. No one dared speak a word, and the presence of God was so strong in that place, you truly physically could not stand up even if you wanted to. Nobody was on the floor. People were sitting in their pews. But the presence of God was so profound and so weighty, you couldn't move. Nor did anyone dare speak. 
I remember that like it was yesterday because it was one of those profound times of truly firsthand experiencing God's glory. Those present at the transfiguration were irrevocably impacted by what they witnessed on the mountain before their very eyes. And while our experiences of seeing God's hand at work and his glory may not quite be of this magnitude, nobody can rob us of the truth of what we have seen and experienced when it is grounded in God's eternal truth. The transfiguration gave those who were present there on the mount a foretaste of the glory which is to come at Christ's second appearing, at his return. And most commentators point to the glory of the transfiguration pointing to Christ's second coming rather than Christ's resurrection because the transfiguration gives us a picture, as J.N.D. Kelly says, of Christ's true might, which he will manifest to all when he comes again on the last day. The revelation of Jesus and his transfiguration and all of its uniqueness in that moment, together with the work of God in our lives, which in different ways still uniquely reveals his glory, all of these things should build us up and cause you and me as God's people to be strengthened and to be encouraged. And when we remain established in God's truth as we live in direct touch with the Lord, we will indeed be strengthened in every way in our Christian life, and we will yearn for our Lord's appearing. Secondly and finally, Peter also points to the reality that everything which he and James and John witnessed is in full accord with the witness of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets. In other words, there is complete and absolute continuity and solidarity between the Old Testament and the apostolic message of the New Testament. That is important. Hear me. That is important for us to understand. The Old Testament is fully God's word. Did you hear that? Because so often in Christian circles, we treat the Old Testament somehow as if it's substandard to the New Testament. The Old Testament is fully God's word. Remember, when Jesus referred to the scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament because we didn't have the New Testament yet. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. There's been a notion in the past decade or so from some prominent um, pastors in the United States who have a lot of media coverage who have one in particular has literally said, we need to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. That is heresy. That is heresy, to be clear. The Old Testament is fully God's word. Yes, it must be read and understood and applied in light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Yes, some of the 
ceremonial and dietary laws don't apply to us in terms of keeping them in a literal way. The New Testament is clear on that. But even those laws that are ceremonial or dietary and that sort of thing, which we are not required to keep, there are still godly principles and truths in every single one of those that have application in our lives. If we understand what God's purpose was in his people being a holy people, set apart from the world around them, set apart solely and holy unto the Lord. So what we see is promise through the old witness of the Old Testament prophets fulfilled through Christ's incarnation and all that follows. And each attests to and affirms the truth and veracity of the other. The old attests to and affirms the truth and veracity of the new. And the new in its fulfillment attests to and affirms the truth and veracity of the Old Testament. Again, to quote Michael Green, thus the transfiguration bears witness to the permanent validity of the Old Testament. For the fulfillment of the Old Testament means not its abolition, but its vindication as a perpetual witness to the supremacy of Christ. The witness of the Old Testament affirms the truth of the new. The witness of the Old Testament affirms the truth of Christ's supremacy. <clears throat> so what is God saying to you and me in all of this? Three things as we conclude. One, we can be assured of the validity of God's truth. God's truth in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament. Verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It comes as the writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can be assured of God's truth. God's truth that will not fail. Two, God calls us to walk closely with him. Walking closely with God means staying grounded in God's truth. <clears throat> Science writer, writer Michael Bond, just a couple of years ago, um, he's a bit of an expert on the subject of traumatic lostness. He writes that loss, being lost is a fear that runs deep in our psyche and in our culture. Children lost in the woods is a common motif in modern fairy tales and in ancient mythology. Usually in fiction, there is some kind of redemption. Snow White is rescued by dwarves. And even Hansel and Gretel facing certain doom in the gingerbread house find their way home. The reality is often more grim. During the 18th and 19th centuries, getting lost was one of the most common causes of death among the children of European settlers in the North American wilderness. He continues, science researcher Dr. Jan Suman used GPS monitors to track numerous volunteers as they tried to walk a straight line without technology through Germany's Biedenwald forest and the Sahara Desert. When clouds obstructed, the sun errors quickly accumulated. Small deviations became large ones, and they ended up walking in circles. With no external cues to help them, people will not travel more than around 100 meters from their starting position, regardless of how long they walk for. This says a lot about our spatial system, what it requires to anchor us to our surroundings. In the absence of landmarks and boundaries, our head direction cells can't compute direction and distance, and they leave us flailing in space. 
above all, pay careful attention when you go into the woods. And I can relate to some of this, not quite in that way, but even when I would... Um, Years ago, hunted, did a lot of hunting out in the mountains in western Maryland where were large expanses of open forest. Um, and you would have a compass and you knew you needed to head south or you need to head west or whatever. You might keep heading south or you might keep heading west, but if you don't have some type of a landmark on the horizon to help you keep your bearings, you can slide miles off of track, still heading south, but you're going around things, working around creeks, and all of a sudden you're going south, but you're walking sideways all the time. You, we need, in this life, our bearings to be able to find where we're going. We need, in the spiritual life, instead of a global positioning system, what I would call a God positioning system, where we are led by the Lord and we have those, those markers, those spiritual markers to help us keep our bearings and keep us anchored in God's truth so that we don't go astray. It means allowing the pure light of God's truth to shine in and upon our lives. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. God's word is a lamp that guides and shines light for us on our path in this dark world. But it's also a light that shines on the murky places in the interior of our lives, places that perhaps are not yet fully surrendered to God. And God, in shining that light on those places, calls us and enables us by his grace to be more fully surrendered and yielded to Christ in every way. God calls us to walk closely with him. And then third and finally, we, like Peter have a true God story to tell if we are Christ. If Christ has made us new creations through his grace and transforming power, we have a story to tell. Yes, it may not be quite as dramatic as on the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet God calls us, has given us that story anchored in his truth to tell others, to shine his light, that we too, even like Peter, who was so concerned about making sure his witness what he experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration was carried forth in the church. And that he attested to the truth and the veracity of the, God's word together with that, God calls you and me to do the same thing. To share what God has done in light of God's truth to which we are anchored. That we true would demonstrate in our lives in the world around us the light and the glory of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for revealing, even for a brief moment, the full glory of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, revealing his true identity on the Mount of Transfiguration for those present to see. Thank you that we have the witness of the apostles, those who are present, the witness of your holy word. And thank you for the witness of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament that all point to your truthfulness, that all point to us and give us guidance of how to walk and serve you in fullness of truth and life. So Lord, guide us.
Continue to transform us as we walk closely with you. Renew us and anchor us ever more fully in the truth. And Lord, give us your grace and most of all your power to share that truth with those who need to hear it most. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.